Hello, everyone, <laughs> and welcome back to Fast Pass, the history podcast in roughly 30 minutes or less. Thank you all for tuning in again. As always, I'm Jason. And I'm Megan. And today we are looking into the Manhattan Project. Ah, uh, yes. The making of the drink. The Manhattan. Uh, uh no. The, the atomic bomb. <laughs> Womp. Well, since we're talking about nuclear weapons, let's talk about nuclear weapons and the history behind them for just a second. Now, although the development of nuclear bombs didn't happen until the 1940s, the idea of nuclear weapons uh, had been a concept since Greek times. In 400 BCE, Democritus, Democritus? Democritus, Democritus, something. That Greek philosopher uh, used the first word, atomus, which meant unable to be cut. He thought that atoms each contained a nucleus surrounded by a field of charged electrons. He thought that these particles were so small that they could not be cut or reduced in size. This was common thought until the 1800s. Now, development began with Leo Szilard. No, wait, Szilard. 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 The development began with Leo Szilard, a Hungarian, what's up, physicist. Uh, concluded that a nuclear chain reaction might be possible if the atom could be split, and that splitting it would produce an incredible amount of energy. Okay, so here comes some science, which I'm not very good at and I don't understand. So I'll be quoting from this book, The Manhattan Project, by John Wukowitz. Quote, Szilard and other scientists knew that the nucleus of the atom is similar to a liquid drop, and that if it could be stretched or pulled into the shape of a dumbbell, it could be split at the thin middle section. This act of splitting an atom is called fission. When fission occurs, the separate pieces split apart at high speed and emit numerous electrons, thereby creating a powerful source of energy. So this energy could be used in many different uses. Uh, for example, it could be harnessed and used to power homes, businesses, entire cities, or it could be used for its very extraordinary destructive capabilities like making weapons or advancing the technology behind those weapons, or just straight up being a weapon all on its own. Now, this is all fine and well, but the problem was that German scientists were busy experimenting with fission before the United States and Great Britain. This was really bad news because this was happening during World War II, and they thought the technology behind fission could turn the tide of the war. While this was all happening, scientists were fleeing Europe as Hitler was approaching and rising to power. Most notably, Albert Einstein left Europe and became part of Princeton University's advanced study. Now, on July 12, 1939, Hungarian scientist, another one, Eugene Wigner? 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 Wigner. And Szilard met with Einstein to tell him that work was being done in Germany and to explain to him that they what they knew about fission. Now, Einstein was very much against war, my man, but he understood the threat that Hitler posed. So he wrote to then-president Franklin Delano Roosevelt about what he knew. At first, the president didn't do much since he was dealing with the Great Depression, but there were reports that Germany would have the kind of technology in a few years to create nuclear weapons. So Einstein kept pushing for Roosevelt to take action. Now, on June of 1941, Roosevelt signed Executive Order 8807, which created the Office of Scientific Research and Development, or OSRD. OSRD would not only research the atomic bomb, but other weapons that would, quote, benefit the nation. So far, so good. Uh, Roosevelt is finally ready to throw down and take care of the issue instead of skirting around it. Now, I'm very anti-war, so I don't really understand why we spend so much money on weapons that we don't fully understand and how those could quote-unquote benefit the nation. But that's just me, and here we are. Uh, well, I mean, if we just stopped at using them to defend the nation instead of 
like as a as a hovering threat, mm. then things would would have just been a lot better and a lot more peaceful. But that's the negative when new tech comes out. Someone can and will find a way to weaponize it. Unfortunately. But there were some positives that came out of OSRD I wanted to mention. One of them was penicillin, which was vastly, uh, which vastly helped reduce the number of deaths in the battlefield. I mean, I'm allergic to penicillin, but I mean, it's not all bad. It, it helps other people. It would kill you, but it helped uh, other people. Yeah. Um, so I think this would be a good time to learn about the people who worked on the Manhattan Project, the main people, before Jason gets into the actual project itself. Now, there were a multitude of scientists working on this. It was not a single-person job. All of the information here is coming from the Nor Norwich University because there's a lot of science, and I don't quite understand all that science. So, firstly, and most importantly, was J. Robert Oppenheimer. He was a professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley. Now, he's often referred to as the, quote, father of the atomic bomb. Prior to the Manhattan Project, he had spent years researching fast neutrons and developing the logistical calculations needed to determine the amount of radioactive material required to produce a bomb. This is in part the reason of why he was chosen for the project, obviously. In 1942, he was chosen by the United States Army to manage uh, the lab for the atomic bomb and was given a budget of $2 million because the Army recognized how important it was to beat Germany in the nuclear arms race. He said that the hardest aspect of the Manhattan Project was developing a, quote, sound method for implosion and purifying plutonium. So Oppenheimer's budget of $2 million with an inflation rate of 3.68%, that would imply that Roosevelt gave him roughly $32,417,161 in today's monies. But let's get back into it. We just came out of a depression. Why not throw $32 million at a project? I mean, it was $2 million at the time. <laughs> Leo Seelerd, the Hungarian physicist we talked about before, worked closely with Einstein to draft the letter and was sent to the president. He earned his degree from the University of Berlin alongside Einstein. He did most of his early research in Germany, but fled as the Nazi party gained power. His part on the project had to do with uranium fission. His team developed the first self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction, which was very, very important to the atomic weapons. So if Oppenheimer's job is to manage the lab and develop a sound method for pu purifying plutonium, then that means Szilard's job is to bring his knowledge of the self-sustaining nuclear reaction. Okay, so we have the materials purified and we have a sustainable reaction. Who else had a hand in the uh, proverbial pie? Hans Berth. Uh, he was born in Strasbourg and served as the chief of theoretical division for the Manhattan Project after he fled Germany during the rise of the Third Reich. I uh, just want to cut in and say, you know there's a problem with your country if all the intellectuals leave. They clearly knew how bad it was going to get. Yep. Hans showcased nuclear fusion, different than fission. Fusion is the reaction that occurs in the heat of massive stars. The proposed, They proposed several ways that hydrogen nuclei could be fused with helium nucle nuclei, which was fundamentally important to the completion, god damn it, of the atomic bomb. There's a lot of science words here. Um, he also helped to develop a formula for calculating the explosive yield of an atomic bomb and the formula for calculating the critical mass of uranium-3, nope, uranium-235. This was the earliest material used in the atomic bombs, like the ones we dropped on Japan in 1945. So Hans proposed a fusion of elements rather than just the separation of atoms. And he did the math in regards to the size of the bomb of this caliber. All right. So then we have uh, Ernest O. Lawrence. He was an American-born nuclear physicist who got his doctorate degree at University of California, Berkeley. 
Prior to the Manhattan Project, Lawrence worked in an academic research lab where he invented the cyclotron in 1929, which was a device that accommodates the acceleration of nuclear particles to velocities high enough to disintegrate atoms and form new elements without using high voltage currents. This was very useful in the creation of the atomic bomb, and uh, he was the program chief for the Manhattan Project and was charged with overseeing research concerning electromagnetic separation of atoms to be used in the bomb. He actually fought to suspend the atomic bomb testing at the Geneva Convention in 1958. Just a fun fact. So this logical man knew using it as a weapon was a bad frickin' idea and decided to fight against it after the war. I mean, good call. Nice try. It it, it sadly didn't work. No, it did not. <laughs> Next, we have Klaus Fuchs. That was Fuchs. Fuchs. Thank you. Fuchs. Next, we have Klaus Fuchs. He was a German theoretical physicist and a notorious spy working for the Soviet Union who was embedded into the Manhattan Project. He fled Germany at the rise of the Third Reich as well, but went to Quebec as a German refugee in 1940, then came a British citizen in 1942, then Great Britain selected him to be part of the Manhattan Project. But while he was helping with the atomic bomb, he also delivered the secrets to the Soviet Union. Sneaky, sneaky. Mm. Uh, although he was a spy, he did contribute a lot to the project through a variety of his theories. He developed um, the means needed to implode the critical, fissionable core within the first designs of the bomb. In fact, his work was one of the initial implosion atomic bombs, codenamed Fat Man, was used to destroy Nagasaki. Due to his accomplishments, he was granted high security clearance and access to many of the aspects of the project that he sold to the Soviet Union. It was thought that because of his help, the Soviets were able to develop this kind of technology a whole year sooner than they would have. He was found out in 1949 and sentenced to 14 years in prison, of which he only served nine. But even though he was a spy, basically, without his theories, the atomic bomb would not have happened. Mm. So this jerk is just giving away secrets about a project to create a weapon that can destroy the world. That's wonderful. So wonderful. And lastly, we have Glenn Seberg, an American-born chemist who earned his Ph.D. at University of California, Berkeley. With Edwin McMillan, Seberg discovered plutonium, a critical component of nuclear weapon technology. In 1941, after his discovery, he was granted a leave of absence from his research position at Berkeley so that he could join the project. He led the team that handled the plutonium. He also developed a functional method of separating, concentrating, and isolating plutonium. After the bombs were dropped, he became the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission in 1971, where he campaigned for the peaceful use of atomic energy, opposing further testing of nuclear weapons. Just want to say that, you know, it's bad if you're a scientist who worked on this big project, don't ever want it to be used again. I mean, it's crazy that the scientists involved are either refugees seeking asylum from a militaristic regime or from Berkeley in California. <laughs> it's nuts. So... Back in 1939, President Roosevelt received a letter from Einstein, and it warned, quote, It may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium, by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. Now, it appears almost certain that this could be achieved in the immediate future. This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed. A single bomb of this type carried by boat and exploded in a port might very well destroy the whole port together with some of the surrounding territory. However, such bombs might very well prove to be too heavy for transportation by air. 
Now, as a non-scientist myself, I would take this warning pretty freaking seriously. Although, fun fact, they did end up transporting the bombs by air because they used the air bombs to eradicate entire cities in Japan. Yay. I mean, with the advancement in technology goes a long, long way. So helpful. In, in good and bad ways. Um, anyways, back to the Einstein letter. He's also quoted saying, quote, I understand that Germany has actually stopped the sale of uranium from the Czechoslovakian mines, which she has taken over. That she should have taken such early action might perhaps be understood on the ground that the son of the German Undersecretary of State, von Weissacker, is attached to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, where some of the American work on uranium is now being repeated. So basically here, Einstein is saying... They're making atomic weapons. <laughs> Great. So under duress, Roosevelt set up the Advisory Committee on Uranium. Their entire purpose was to test uranium's viability as a weapon. And a year later, the name of the committee was changed to the National Defense Research Committee, which had its name changed again the very next year to a name they finally stuck with, the OSRD, being the Office of Scientific Research and Development in 1941. It wasn't until the bombing of Pearl Harbor that the U.S. government really kicked it up a notch and in 1942 enlisted the Army Corps of Engineers to be involved with the project as well. The OSRD formed the Manhattan Engineer District in the borough of Manhattan, which gave the project its name. I really did have no idea it started in Manhattan. I mean, it makes sense because of the name, but I just feel like if you mess up any part of any kind of testing in New York, like, you could kill a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Leslie R. Groves, a U.S. Army colonel, uh, was brought on to lead the project. And with America's pitiful supply of uranium, we reached out to Canada for help receiving theirs and using it for testing. Um, with the many scientists working on the project, they were set up in different areas working on their own sections pertaining to the overall project. And then they would just bring it all together. Uh, so they had remote sites in New Mexico, Tennessee, Washington, and a few places in Canada as well. See, I only knew about the New Mexico portion. Because that is the most famous one where the original bomb was tested. Cool. So on site in New Mexico was Oppenheimer, who started working on the codename Project Y on New Year's Day 1943. In his lab in Los Alamos, New Mexico, was where the first bomb tests were performed. And in the outskirts of Alamogordo in, on July 16th, 1945, the Trinity test was conducted. Now, one day in this summer heat, they launched the first successful atomic bomb. It detonated and created a 40,000-foot-tall mushroom cloud of an explosion. And we have officially entered the atomic age. Like, imagine you're driving in New Mexico, chilling, and then you just see this huge-ass mushroom cloud. I mean, it was so large that it probably could have reached space. It's almost 20 times taller than the size of the tallest building in the world. And on top of that, when they dropped and tested this bomb, they irradi irradiated the ground doing so. So I just hope that nobody who lived around there stayed there or, you know, like they could have had side effects like the people in Japan who were still dealing with them from their atomic bomb. Apparently during the testing, many of the scientists ended up adopting graveyard humor. Um, in Neil Sullivan's book, The Prometheus Bomb, The Manhattan Project and Government in the Dark, he tells the story of how the night before the Trinity test, scientist Enrico Fermi opened a betting book taking wagers on whether or not the bomb would ignite the atmosphere, and if so, whether it would destroy merely New Mexico or destroy the world. What the fuck? Like, honestly, at some point, 
as a scientist, or you're like, hmm, this could destroy the whole world. Fucking de- detonate it. Like, is there no, no part of you that's like, hmm, perhaps we should not? I mean, that's why we have the mad scientist stereotype. It's like, oh, yes, I want to build a death ray. Looking at you, Nicholas Tesla. Nikola Tesla. <laughs> Nikolai. Nicholas. Steve. I don't know. I'm just throwing names now. But another story from Sullivan's book says... Edward Teller was instructed to be wary of rattlesnakes for those going to see the early morning tests. And Teller ran into a colleague, Robert Serber. Uh, Teller asked Serber what he planned to do about the risk of rattlesnakes, and Serber just responded he'd bring a bottle of whiskey. And then Teller questioned about the risk of the explosion being beyond their calculations, and Serber replied that he would deal with that with a second bottle of whiskey. Cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they, they were just like, we're, we're screwed, so I might as well just get drunk and enjoy it. I wonder how close they were to the test, because, like, to th- I mean, they didn't understand radiation poisoning back then, but, you know? They probably understood it, but they wouldn't understand the extent of how far it would carry after, the, like, uh, ground zero of the explosion. Mm. So. Cool. And with the fact that it was a mushroom cloud going 40,000 40, feet, feet, I have no no clue. But scientists under Oppenheimer created two types of bombs. The one using uranium-235 was designated the little boy, and the one using plutonium was designated as the fat man. With these weapons of mass destruction, the U.S. set out to end the Second Great War. I like that they named one the little boy, because it sounds so tiny and harmless, but it's actually really deadly, and that makes me kind of sad. So... (laughs) On July 26, 1945, in the Allied-occupied city of Postum, Germany, the U.S. delivered an ultimatum to the Japanese. Essentially, they said, surrender and adopt a new peaceful democratic government or, quote, face prompt and utter destruction. Oh, yeah. Did I mention that this new government meant to dethrone, dethrone the emperor and remove him from power entirely? Because, uh, well, that's what they said. And Japan wasn't exactly too fond of this. And they straight up said no. Wow, this is uh, bringing back memories from my class on the atomic bombs. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a time. It's a time. It's a time. Them saying no is essentially all the U.S. needed to hear as they prepared the nuclear bombs for deployment. And Neil Sullivan, in his book, described what happened in Hiroshima as, quote, war compressed to an instant. The destruction itself was nothing new to war, but the fact that it happened nigh instantaneously and had the added effect of radiation poisoning and the lasting damage to the environment was just unbelievable. And at this point, the war should have been over and Japan would surrender, so the Allies issued them the same ultimatum and bid them surrender. The Japanese government were in talks and discussions about actually surrendering or if they should fight on, and apparently they took too long with their discussions. So three days later, after the destruction of Hiroshima, Nagasaki suffered the wrath of the second nuclear bomb. These two cities were selected specifically for tactical reasons. Hiroshima was known as a pretty large city that had no known American prisoners of war in the area, which is why it was selected. And Nagasaki was the secondary choice because it had uh, a known torpedo building site. Like, what gets me about these specific cities is they're civilian cities. Like, okay, the first one did not have any American uh, prisoners of war, so, like, great, let's just bomb a whole bunch of citizens. Like, I feel like... If you're going to get involved in a war, you should go after places that have military things. That's that's when I don't feel like it's a war crime almost. But when you go for civilians who may or may not even support the war, like that's just, it hurts me. 
I don't know. I that's... mean, I guess they had more, like, justification for Nagasaki, but even then, it's not... I don't feel like it's good justification, well, you know? Well, that's where the phrase, all's fair in love and war, comes from, because... I guess it's just used as an excuse to bring innocence into a fight that they don't need to be a part of. It's just so sad. Yeah. And considering this isn't even the worst atrocity we've done to the Japanese people during the war. Yeah, I know. We dropped firebombs on Tokyo back when it was all wood. And we burned the fucking city to the ground. And the people in it. Yeah. So this was considered, I'm not going to say humane, but less... Because they were liquefied, it wasn't as like, like they were a, they were pretty much killed instantaneously instead of melting and feeling the pain of the like the burning fire, it's, which is really really fucked. It's so bad. It I I I don't I you know I you know I have, I have strong feelings about this whole. So, what's truly messed up is the fact that if you look at the timeline on August sixth, the U.S. dropped Little Boy on Hiroshima, and Fat Man was dropped on the 9th of August to uh, Nagasaki and then Japan informed DC of their intention to surrender on the 10th like a day after and there's that time difference too yeah so they formally and en- they ended up formally surrendering on the 14th of August the second bomb was not even necessary and also like three days to give them a chance to surrender is not enough time because information wasn't transmitted as easily as it is today you can't just like snapchat a picture and be like oh my god it's totally destruction it's yeah and with the eradication of a city yeah, pretty much no instantaneously there's like no one to be like hey an entire freaking city is missing they had no way to comprehend the full destruction of this first bomb before the second one was dropped yeah it just also okay so when i learned about this section in class i was told that the emperor the whole thing is they wanted them to get rid of the emperor right yes the entire intention was to dethrone the emperor and put in like a democratic government that was the intention for the first bomb that was intention for the second bomb well jason had found some information saying that they did dethrone the emperor so i looked mine up and history.com says that on august 15th 1945 hirohito um he made a radio broadcast announcing japan's surrender great and then a post-war constitution preserved the monarchy, but defined the emperor as a mere symbol of the state. So they never got rid of the emperor. They just made him a puppet. But, like, the people wouldn't know that. He was so, essentially the figurehead of a democratic government. But they didn't get rid of him. Like, but they didn't it, get rid of him. That's the whole point. That was your whole justification for dropping these two whole-ass bombs, and you didn't even get what you wanted out of it. Apparently, the U.S. government bluffed and said, we have a third bomb and we're going to drop it on you. But when the Japanese surrendered and said, look, can we just, like, kind of keep our emperor? America not having a third bomb is just like, all right, we're going to, let's just, let's just roll with that. That's good enough. It's just, it's so interesting how, like, information is different in different places that you look. Because I knew in my whole heart that that was not true. Yeah. So it's just, like, you always have to check sources. You always have to check information because they want to make America look better in this situation. But... You have to know the truth. That's why you need multiple sources, because one could discredit another one. Exactly. So. So. (laughs) After my rant. Was dropping the second bomb even necessary? No. That question has been asked by historians pretty much ever since. And now I wish this was the end of the story, but it's not. During the building of the bombs, man that we already talked about, Klaus Fuchs. Fuchs? Fuchs. Just double checking. Uh, He was part of the British delegation, and he met a man named Harry Gold, who was a Soviet agent. Fuchs was described as a quiet, withdrawn man who, quote, left no impact with his colleagues. 
Uh, Fouche used the information he gained and fed it to Mr. Gold, who then took the information about the project to the Soviet Union. Fouche's deceit wasn't discovered until 1949. He was arrested in 1950. He then ratted out Harry Gold, who was arrested, and like dominoes falling, name after name came out. So Gold outed a man named David Greenglass, which I'm just going to go on the record and state Greenglass is a terrible spy mm-hmm. name. It's such a transparent name. Of course they saw through him. But um, shh. Yeah. <laughs> so now uh, if, if you guys are keeping track on the dates, we have officially entered the second Red Scare. And jokes aside, Greenglass was an army officer who helped with the Manhattan Project. And after getting caught and revealed as another Soviet agent, he pointed the finger at his sister, Ethel. See, Ethel was married to a man named Julius Rosenberg. And Rosenberg, oh my God, okay. So Rosenberg is so important to the Second Red Scare because out of all of the name calling and witch trials, basically, Rosenberg, they were the two people that were actually executed for their part But the thing is, a lot of people don't even think they were actual Soviet spies. I'm going to pull up another source here from AtomicHeritage.org, which basically said that many Americans, especially left-winged, believe that the Rosenbergs were prosecuted solely because they had past involvement in the Communist Party. And their legal team worked to have the verdict overturned and efforts failed, but neither President Truman or Eisenhower granted the request to remove their death sentence. So um, they tried to appeal to the Supreme Court nine times, and it was never reviewed. But J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI at the time, he publicly opposed the trial, and he believed that the execution of Ethel, a young mother, would reflect negatively on both the United States, the Justice Department, and the FBI. And even people in Europe were totally against this sentence and this um, prosecution. Like, they don't truly have enough evidence to say that, yes... These people were active communist spies giving stuff back to the Soviet Union. They just had information saying that, yes, they had been involved in the past. There was no Mm. concrete evidence. Mm. So interesting how everything is so just like ah, intertwined. So it has been said that Julius brought both her and her brother over to the communist side, which is where the whole uh, accusations come from. And all of them were arrested. But it goes even further because David Greenglass's wife, Ruth, was also arrested for aiding in the espionage. Apparently, she had taken the notes uh, from him and made copies before passing them off. And David outed his sister and her husband in order to try and protect his wife so that her charges would be dropped. Pretty damn outrageous, honestly. And, like, you literally got them murdered. Yes. And what the most interesting part was, that's where the, that's where the domino effect ended. They pointed out the Rosenbergs and just called it there because the Rosenbergs didn't point out anybody because they probably probably had no connections. Yeah, they probably weren't freaking communists. They're just like, look, we're innocent. We have nothing to hide. So why would we just like point a finger at somebody else and blame it on them? So they were executed without proper evidence and and proper information. So way to go. Way to go, America. Um but after the whole espionage debacle, the bombs being dropped, and the war being over, pretty much every major scientist who worked on the project showed remorse for it. Uh, some trying to fight against it and the usage of the bombs at any point in the future, and others who just no longer wanted to be acknowledged when it came to the project. And then, then there's even more who are just stuck with just this as their legacy. And the rest is history. Yep, that that was 
That was. That was that. Um, <laughs> if you have any requests for future episodes you want us to do some research on, you can either DM us at Twitter at FastPast1, or you can give us an email at FastPastPodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to hear more from me, you can check out my Instagram, JT Reinertson. Um, I post Snickerdoodle pictures or the occasional something. <laughs> Otherwise, you can check me out on Inside the Gamer Stronghold, a video game podcast that I do with my friend Mark Zebro. It is on uh, Podbean, SoundCloud. Podbean, SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Ooh, I think it's Google Play. I hope it is. Otherwise, wow. I'm deleting this part. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Wait, and where can they find you? I mean, okay, like I, I have a little makeup Instagram page at. What is it? Makeup by underscore Meg T. That's your Instagram page? What about your YouTube page? I do also have a YouTube channel where you might see Jason on there because I do vlogs and makeup stuff. So What is it called? It's my name. It's Megan Tobias. <laughs> nice. Nice. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.